Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sankhang yavanibhanang saranang gachami getting very close towards the end of the rains retreat now. However, that doesn't re- mean very much for those of you who are staying here forever, Yawanibhanang, to uh, enlightenment, to Nibbana, to extinction. So it's uh, always good, even at this time, to remember the purposes while we are here and to keep our goals very clearly in mind, not just at the beginning of a retreat period, but even at the end of a retreat period as well. That goal is Nibbāna. And that goal of Nibbāna is achieved in different stages, as you all know. The first stage, which is so pivotal in the career of your five khandhas, of the five candles, sorry, not your five candles, is the stage of stream entry where the citta sees the Dhamma and thereby goes on a course by which at the most seven uh, existences are all that there is for that citta at the very most. The underlying cause for the regeneration of this chitta from life to life, namely the deceit of a self has been uncovered. <coughs> However, there is still the old conditioning there which can keep you going if you're a stupid person. And if you are pamada, which is the uh, Buddhist word for heedless, for uh, seven lifetimes in devil realms, human realms, counting both. And as such, that is a pivotal point which everyone should aspire towards at the minimum in this lifetime. If you don't achieve stream entry as a monk, novice, anagarika, and upasika, upasika, lay people, then you're in great danger. Whatever samadhi you achieve, whatever knowledge you have, can all be lost. That is impermanent. Anicca, it's there for one lifetime, it can be completely disappeared the next. The only security you can have is to gain at least stream entry. And so that should be your first goal, stream entry at least. And if not, at least that, once you go even further to get the, the full Nibbana, the full Arahat, so that there is no trace of any craving which gives rise to rebirth, there's no trace of delusion left in any level of cognition. And it's this traces of delusion and different levels of cognition which I wanted to speak about this evening. It is a way of understanding the path and a way of understanding how the path can be difficult and the problem you have with it in terms of one of the most beautiful teachings in the Pitaka, the, the Whippalazas. 
these are the distortions of the three levels of cognition, knowing, the three levels of knowing, the knowing at the level of view, the knowing at the level of perception, and the knowing at the level of conception or thinking. These three different levels need to be well understood, to be seen. And by pointing out that uh, delusion, awija, can be best explained in these three levels <coughs> of delusion, or these delusion at these three levels of knowing, uh, makes the difficulties in the task to get stream entry and uh, full nibbana very obvious. But having seen the difficulties and knowing exactly where they lay, then you understand what needs to be done and how this whole cycle of existence can come to an end. And so uprooting these whippalasas in this framework which the Buddha taught. It's also very important to understand these whippalasas because it shows you the danger in just taking on face value what you view as truth, as correct, what you perceive as truth or correct, and what you think as true and correct. You should be careful of those three levels of knowing. It's too easy to say that this is just how it appears, the way it is, this is truth, because I perceive it, because I think it, because it's my view. But people who have not seen just how the distortion of these three levels of knowing actually occurs in nature will completely get taken in by this distorted mind and will keep on getting reborn and experiencing dukkha again and again and again for countless lifetimes. When the Buddha taught the dependent origination which I was talking about in the previous talk Sometimes that the beginning of the cycle of uh, delusion, the awija, the start of it all. Now sometimes that some people, I'm sorry to say, even monks sometimes start talking about where should you cut this, the dependent origination cycle, and they start sort of speculating about cutting it up passer at contact, cutting it at feeling, vedana, and to understand that the way the Buddha taught the Dharma is awija has to be uprooted. And the delusion, that's the whole point of sitting meditation, to train the mind to be that sharp, that penetrating, that able to cast aside the delusions which you value and which you cherish cast them all aside and to see the truth, the Dhamma of Anicca Dukkha, especially the truth of Anatta. And if one can do that, there one starts cutting back at Awija. One starts to eradicate Awija, the delusion. And that's where this whole cycle of existence starts to be uprooted. And with it, craving, with it, uh, the taking up of things, with it, uh, more birth, suffering, and all of that. There it is ended with the abandoning 
the uprooting of awija, the discovery, discovery of the deceit. What's kept you, uh, kept the fuel going for this cycle of rebirth. So it's up to us to understand these three levels of knowing because in these three levels of knowing is because we believe in it, we value it, we take it as certain and true that we get deceived. On the level of view, on the level of perception, on the level of thought. And uh, it, many of you have heard me talk about this before, but for those of you who haven't, you can see how the cycle works. You can start on any of these uh, three things. Let's just start at perception, for example. Why do you perceive, whatever you perceive, from your perceptions, using perceptions as the bricks, you build like the house of thought. It's, your thinking is based upon your perceptions. This is how I see it. This is how I feel it. This is how I hear it. This is how I think it. The perceptions and all the six sense bases, what you perceive, you think about. And if you watch your, your thinking, you see it is limited by the perceptions that you have had in the world. For those people who have yet to perceive the nimitter of the mind, who still don't know the mind yet in its pure form, for those who haven't had the perceptions of jhanas, the thought cannot embrace those realities. The, the thinking is limited by the perceptions which you have. You cannot build sort of a, a, a gold house out of clay bricks. You need gold bricks for that. Out of clay bricks you just build a clay house. If all of your perceptions are limited to the sensory world, by which I mean the world of the five senses, if that's all you know, so your experience, your perceptual experience, then you can just build clay houses, clay brick houses. Only if you have gold bricks can you build the gold houses. So to know that your thoughts are limited by your perceptions. So often it is the case that when you get the strange perceptions you know, of uh, the jhana realms, or even of upachara samadhi, where you're, you're facing the mind but not really merged into it yet. That all of these are strange states. The perceptions which you have are just so often weird. And it really depends on uh, your views of dhamma, of life, the world, your religious views, how you interpret those perceptions. But first of all, the first time you get close to these jhana states, the perceptions are weird, they're strange. And you can actually see the way that the perception creates the particular types of view, sorry, the particular types of thought which come up into the mind. Sometimes the thought is of fear, sometimes it is of excitement. Sometimes it's thoughts of control. These are all created by these perceptions. 
which are misinformed. But that's with the finer world of the, the Rupa Loka, of the, the jhanas, let alone the Karma Loka. All of the perceptions which you have, sort of, they give rise to thought. For those of you who are still concerned with anger or lust, is to see it's how certain perceptions give rise to that lust or give rise to that anger. You see a beautiful girl. What actually are you seeing there? It's because of the defilements. The perception picks out only those attractive aspects. It wants to see beauty. And all that is ugly, all that is uh, detracting from the perfection of that person, you just do not see. You all know my technique for overcoming lust. If you see a beautiful woman, look for her pimples. Look for the smell. Look for something which is unbeautiful. So you're changing the perception there. You're changing the, uh, the flow of perception which looks for the beautiful and which discards the unbeautiful. And if that's what your perception does, and what happens is that the thinking starts to go off into lust. Wow, she's really beautiful. Wow, that's really wonderful. And then you get off into lustful thoughts and lustful fantasies and lustful dreams. As far as lust is concerned, the, I was talking with uh, someone recently about one of the most beautiful similes which I like, which the Buddha gave about lust and the reality and the perception and how different they are. He said like lust was like a dog, hungry and starving, waiting outside a butcher's shop. And the butcher throws the dog, this poor starving animal, just a bone covered with blood. It tastes like food, it smells like food, but all it can do is lick and get the taste. It cannot get sustenance. It's never satisfying. It never delivers the promise. That's what sensuality is like, never delivers a promise. That's the truth of it. But the perception of it is that, yeah, maybe it will this time. Maybe this is the one. Maybe at last I've got it figured out how to get satisfaction through sensual desire. Well, the same with anger. The perception is that someone is deliberately stowed in the way of your goal of happiness, satisfaction, contentment or whatever. And that perception gives rise to thought. When a person is angry, they think a lot. Their mind goes off into justification of their angry moods. See that. And see just how the perception has given rise to thoughts. And from those thoughts, you can see that they give rise to views. If you think a lot, about sensuality, that's how you view the world in a sensory way. This world is to be enjoyed. Eat, drink, have sex and be happy. Today we live, tomorrow we may die. Let's just enjoy ourselves as much as possible. Let's just 
get rid of the people we don't like. The views can turn in that circle from perception, making thoughts. Perception as bricks, the thoughts as the buildings, the views as the villages and towns in which we abide. And if we abide in a certain village and town, if all the other houses there are made out of clay bricks, then that's what we make to make our extensions, more clay bricks. From our views comes our perceptions. And which is an interesting understanding of the Dhamma. The way you view the world has a direct impact on the way you perceive every moment of sensory experience. If you view the world like a putuchana, like an ordinary person, a person who is a karma bogey, who enjoys the sensory realm, then your perceptions will and your thoughts will justify that view. Why is it in this world that people have so many different views and are all sure that they are right? How can they not see that they are wrong? Because from their views they build their perceptions and they build their thoughts and that confirms their view and so the whole circle goes round. A person who is a Christian will actually perceive God acting in all sorts of different ways in their life. And their perceptions will actually will create their thoughts which will confirm their views. And they will go around in delusion, convinced that they are right. But what I see and what I hear, the perceptions, this is the way it is. I'm perceiving this thinking it, it's logical, it's reasonable and it creates a view. Really it's the level of view which the Buddha said you can actually challenge this whole cycle. The level of view is where you cut the cycle of uh, whippalazas, the distortions of the three levels of knowing. But it's hard to cut that distortion of, of view. The way the Buddha taught to cut the distortion of view is understanding that that distortion of view is fed by the five hindrances. This is a nutriment of awija, of delusion, the five hindrances. The karma chanda or abhija whichever one you wish to use, the uh, feeling that there can be something satisfying in the world of the five senses, keeps you concerned with this body, with finding satisfaction in places you live through sight, sound, physical feeling, smell and taste, trying to find satisfaction through food. A person who understands the simile of the, the bone just smeared with blood, just thrown to the dog, would know that there cannot in no way be any satisfaction in that realm of the five senses at all. If you know that, at least on the level of view, 
eventually it will percolate up to the level of perception. Mindfulness, sati, will remember the view and keep it in mind all the time that sensory desire is like a bone smeared with blood. The food which I have in my bowl will never satisfy the defilements. No matter, even if I leave the monkhood and go to the finest restaurants in the world, I would never satisfy the defilements. I will never get the perfect meal. It will always come close and then disappear. It will be all eaten and gone. The taste disappeared, only a lingering memory which wants more, just like the, the taste on the bone for the dog tastes good but where's the rest? The hunger still gnaws in the intestines and stomach of the poor dog. You cannot get satisfaction in that way. And if the mindfulness remembers that, if the view is strong enough, the noble view, having cut the defilement of, of uh, being starved through the abandoning of the hindrance of karma chanda, then not only perception, but even thoughts, any fantasies, sexual, sensual or whatever, will be abandoned because there's nothing feeding them. And as those thoughts get abandoned, so does the view have no opportunity to uh, change into the old ways of viewing of this is uh, something which is really worthwhile. Karma Chanda needs to be abandoned, needs to be reduced, needs to be starved. First of all at the level of view. Contemplate. Do not believe your perceptions or thoughts. It's at the level of view this has to start and then perceptions and thoughts will follow. Even when you perfect the view or think you perfected the view of there's no satisfaction in the sensory realm. Still, perceptions and thoughts will arise from time to time, concerned with sensory desire. It's simply because that mindfulness is not strong enough. The mind forgets. And perception can arise just so quickly, so can thought based on the views of the past, old karma as it were. This is an indication of how sensory desire works and how it is stopped, the level of view. And the hindrance of vayapada, of ill will, to be able to stop that, to realize that that's just a like a pit of coals, you're just burning yourself with wayapada, with ill will. It's like the Buddha said, it's like a person having a hot coal trying to throw it at someone else. They may hit the other person, they may miss, but at least they burn their own hand. That's when you get ill will against someone else. If they're wise, they won't receive your ill will, they'll just be peaceful. That's when you're aim to hurt them with the hot coal misses, but at least you've burnt yourself. Whatever happens, 
But of course the view usually is that this is important, I have to do this, it's what that person needs to be told. And if that wrong view is there, then the perceptions that yeah, you can actually see that they do need to be told. You perceive all of their faults, all the other times they've done, thing wrong, done things wrong. The perceptions of old bad karma they've done come up, or you perceive it in ways you think they deliberately done that to you. And that creates the whole thinking process of ill will. Where you can spend all day just thinking bad thoughts about someone else and ways you can get your own back at them. And that just firms up the view of ill will. If you just cut that view, that no one, no being in this realm is deserving of ill will, no matter what they've done. No one is deserving of ill will. And it cuts the fuel away from the perceptions, which will see them in ways trying to justify that ill will. The perception of compassion becomes possible then. And thoughts of compassion become possible based on those perceptions. Once you can see a person in a compassionate light, once perception can do that, then thoughts of compassion can come up. Thoughts of kindness, thoughts of forgiveness. And it has to start with view. And the hindrance of Tina Mida, of sloth and torpor, is the escape from the suffering of the, of the world through just going into doziness, sleepiness, mistiness. Very often that Tina Mida is caused just by uh, escaping into a state where the senses are dull. To understand what causes dullness. It's a re reaction to the suffering in the, in the world. People who are depressed, who experience suffering, sleep a lot. People who are enjoying themselves get up early in the morning. Even, remember, the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. In the summertime, he'd always get up early in the morning at dawn. When school was out, his mother couldn't even get him out of bed. The reaction to suffering was to stay in bed. The reaction to happiness was to get up really early in the morning. And isn't that sometimes the same with your practice, if you have a hard time getting up in the morning? Isn't it because your meditation isn't joyful? The reaction to suffering? I don't want to get up and just another two or three hours of just sitting with his body and his mind, just stay in bed. It's a reaction to suffering. In fact, there's no joy in the, in the, the mind. To understand where that comes from, it's a reaction to suffering which creates more suffering. That's the wrong view of Tina Mida. Somewhere the mind thinks that this is a way to escape suffering, but it creates more suffering. The way to escape the suffering of Tina Mida is to generate energy however you can. And if that perception, if that view can be established, that this is the way to overcome Tina Mida, to generating energy, doing that which is hard to do, pushing, not sort of taking it easy. Uh, if you sleep too much, don't use so many blankets or dunas. 
Uh, sleep outside, sit outside, walk, do something which generates energy, whatever it is. And then that perception can come, starts coming up. Hey, this makes me feel much better. The perception which you have of what's going on, realize that this is the way to escape that suffering. And you think in that particular way as well. The whole cycle of Tina Mida is broken. Another example of just how these uh, whippalazas work and restlessness and worry. Just, just how the Again, the mind, when it's suffering, just wriggles around, tries to escape from the moment, backwards and forwards. Again, like a person being taken to the pit of coals, just tries to escape backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, wriggling. And you don't escape from the suffering of the moment through wriggling, through agitation, but you create more suffering. In the mind, in your meditation, you start to realize that if you go into the center of the moment rather than trying to get somewhere else, which is restlessness. The restlessness is always wanting something else instead of noticing what you have in this moment and learning contentment with that. Contentment in the moment, accepting, looking into it, being at peace with it, being still with it. There you stop restlessness. Then you find actually that no matter what physical state or mental state you are in, if you can get to the center of it and, and stop this terrible doer who's always trying to change things and mess things around, tell it to shut up and just watch and be passive and be a, a passenger on the bus. You find being a passenger on the bus is far more peaceful than being the restless passenger who jumps up and down and walks to the front and shouts at the driver and gives instructions. That's the restlessness. You find that in any state of body or mind, no matter how painful and unpleasant it is, you can be peaceful. You can overcome restlessness by being with rather than trying to do something. And the perception can come up very easily that Hang on, this is the way to deal with the unpleasant part of life. And actually the unpleasant part of life can be very peaceful. That's how the perception can occur. And the thought comes up, creates the, the wise thoughts which overcome restlessness. Instead of making more activity, it ends activity and you go to peacefulness. Wittikichar is just too much thinking. Think, think, think. This way, that way, whatever way. And again, it's because you think by thinking you'll find some answer to the problems which you're trying to solve. You never find the solution to the problems which you, you think that thinking is going to solve in that way. But if you stop thinking, if you just watch for a change instead of talking in your mind, you actually start to see the Dhamma. You have an opportunity of seeing the mind. You have an opportunity of understanding where all this is coming from. And by stopping the wichikicha, stopping the thinking. Okay, so you don't know, just shut up. Stop thinking about all this sort of stuff. And just watch, 
experience, gather more data rather than analyzing it and trying to figure out what it all means at the moment. Remember one of the important uh, aspects of meditation, one of the important aspects whether it's samatha or vipassana for, for karma insights is while you're meditating, don't always be an assessor, always try to find out where you are and what you're supposed to do next. Just hold still for a while and just watch, gather information just through silent observation. And then afterwards you can look back if that's the right time, if it's necessary to do so, what's happening and why. But not all the time. Very often the assessor always testing out and giving ideas and finding out what's happening. It's like you know, someone is doing a job and I just give them a job say to sweep and I keep on their back all the time. Have you swept yet? How are you sweeping? Why are you sweeping? They tell me, shut up, I'm trying to sweep. If that assessor is always on your back every moment, you haven't even got time to sweep. If the assessor is always on the back while you're meditating every moment, you've got no time to get peaceful. The assessor, which is part of the doer, is always messing you up. The five hindrances, you can see how they uh, survive, how they keep on going, how they generate through the scheme, the framework of the whippalazas, the distortions of knowing. And if you can, uh, suppress these five hindrances on the level of view first of all through faith, sadha in the Buddhist teachings to have at least that degree of confidence that it changes your old views and gives rise to the possibility of the, the Dhamma view that these things are unwholesome these ways of looking at things are false so you trust the Buddha's view and you start to distrust your own view. You trust the Buddha's perceptions and you distrust your own perceptions. You distrust your own thoughts and you trust in the Buddha's Dhamma, the Buddha's teachings. That's where you start to weaken the hindrances. And as you weaken the hindrances, There'll be times when they disappear completely. And it's those times when they disappear completely when you have the opportunity to gain right view. The right view which goes on a far deeper level of correcting the distortions. Again, the Buddha taught the main function of the distortions is on the level of view, perception and thought to convince you that there's a self, that this is all yours, that you've got some, something to do with all of this. And that's what it does, it distorts you on that level. And so creating the illusion of a self, it also creates the illusion of a mind. This belongs to me. And with that, there'll be, there must be something which is happy in this world. Creates the illusion of, of sukha, of happiness. 
It creates the illusion of beauty, Subha. It creates the illusion of, of permanence. It is the delusion of self and mind which creates these other uh, distortions of Nietzsche, of Subha and of Sukha. And Nietzsche, permanence, Subha, beauty, Sukha, happiness. This is actually the function of the illusion of self. When is a self, there will be something which belongs to a self. When it's something which belongs to a self, it will bend the truth to extreme limits to say, this is beautiful, this is my wife, this is my body, this is what I own, this is beautiful, this is going to be permanent, this is going to be happiness. And sometimes it bends the truth with material things, sometimes it bends the truth with the act of uh, sensory experience, but certainly it bends the truth with ideas and concepts and views. Because of the illusion of self, all these other things will not be able to be seen for what they are. It is the illusion of self which has to be broken first of all before one can see anicca, before one can see dukkha, before one can see asupa fully. If there's still an idea of self there, that illusion will distort all perceptions, thoughts and views, which will demand there must be somewhere in this universe which is permanent, which is beautiful, which is happy. God cosmic consciousness, the that in I am that, the ultimate ground of existence or whatever, that's all created by the delusion of self. There's a delusion of self there on a very basic level of perception and thought. You will not be able to allow the possibility of extinction, of niroda, nibbana, it is a delusion of self which exists even in monks, which make them not see the Dhamma which is so clearly explained in the Pitaka, that an arahat, when they die, that's the end. Five candles gone, nothing remaining. The vinyana, namarupa, asesa viraga niroda, for the candles gone with nothing remaining. Even like good monks still think there must be some something left, the ultimate ground of being, cosmic consciousness, that which always was and always would be, will be. So it's all part of the illusion of self. Remember that illusion of self on those three levels of this I am, where you measure yourself, usually against others. It's called conceit, the measuring, better, worse, the same. If that perception and thought comes up, comparing yourself with others, that's part of the illusion of self. If that builds up a view 
inferiority complex or superiority complex or equality complex, which is also a complex. If that that's the equality complex which creates so much trouble in the Western world. Inferiority, superiority, and we're all equal. It's still part of the illusion of self. And if if that is there, that's called conceit, that's part of the self-illusion. The arahat does not measure themselves, nor anyone else. Let's see, I am. This is mine. The next part of the self-delusion. But if the feelings in your body you are concerned about to the point that they excessively disturb you, look to see whose feelings these are. Do the, does the pain in my body belong to me? Does the body itself belong to me? Do the perceptions and thoughts in my mind belong to me? Does what I'm hearing now belong to me? Or does it belong to Ajahn Brahm? Or does it belong to nature? Or who does it belong to? Does it belong to anyone? If you get angry at the birds or the crows making a noise, who does the sound belong to? Does it belong to you? If it does not belong to you, why are you bothered with it? It belongs to the crows. The pain in the body belongs to the body, it doesn't belong to you. The thoughts in your head belong to stupidity, to Mara. Let Mara be bothered with them. You just give them to Mara and just be silent. If you really understand the teaching of this is not mine, it will always result in the abandoning of those things through lack of concern. Why is it that when we try to meditate we can't get into jhana? That you cannot give up the body and its five senses? It is because at a level of perception and thought you are taking these things as mine. The view from time to time might be, oh yeah, this isn't mine, I know this. That's what it says in the suttas. You may be able to quote the suttas. But the view isn't really strong, it isn't really deep. There's still part of you which hasn't been fully penetrated to yet. And it gives rise to the illusion of this is mine, belongs to me, something I have to deal with. What is not yours you can let go of very easily. What is yours, or what you think is yours, what you perceive as yours, what you view is yours, no matter how much you try, you won't be able to let it go. It sticks to you because it's glued through the illusion of self. That's why this illusion of self there's a major obstacle to the gaining of the paths and fruits. If you can overcome the hindrances, even for a short time, then you can try letting go of the body. That's why the Kuba Ajans 
in Thailand, the great teachers, they stress the kaya sati, the mindfulness of the body or the recollection of, on the body, the first of the satipatthanas. I often reflected, why do they spend so much efforts or so much emphasis rather on that particular satipatthana, on the body, the body, the body? It's because if you can see the body as not-self, if you can view it as not-self, if you can perceive it as not-self, if you can think of it as not-self, you'll always, you'll also view, perceive and think the five senses which make up this body, which is concerned with this body. The body is here to support the five senses. If you can let go of the five senses through kaya-gata-sati by realizing the body is not mine, nothing to do with me, then you can get into jhana. The obstacle, the great obstacle to jhana, the attachment to the body and the five senses is overcome. And you dwell in the mind, the jitta. Afterwards, if you want to develop the higher jhanas, then you can do things like Vedananusati and Chittanusati and Dhammanusati, which are concerned with like mind things, mind objects, perception, consciousness, mind objects. And by understanding that these coarser objects of the lower jhanas are also nothing to do with me not mine, then you can abandon them. Remember that to get first jhana you have to let go of karma loka, the realm of the five senses. To get second jhana you have to let go of the movement of the mind, vitakavichara, caused by lack of confidence in that nimitta which is before you. You have to get rid of the piti to get into third jhana, get rid of the sukha to get into fourth jhana. You're just getting rid of things which you think belong to you, which are important to you, which make you up. Seeing these things, if you truly see them, means you can let go of them. That's why the Kuba Ajahn, they taught Kayagata Sati a lot so people could at least get into first jhana. If you can get into first jhana, abandon the five external hindrances, abandon the body, then in that first jhana, you experience afterwards when you emerge, the view that the body is mine should be very easy to extinguish. You've seen something cease. And if you are fortunate, you can look at the mind as well. Look at the sixth sense. And you see what consciousness was, mind consciousness was. And you should be able to see, man, that is not me, that is not mine. You can see what dukkha is in the realm of the five senses, 
when you experience the bliss of a jhana. Because you've got the perception of jhana consciousness as data to work on. From perception will come the thought, from thought will come the view. You are blowing up a lot of illusion through those experiences. You're blowing up enough, enough cracks in the foundation of wrong view, which without these experiences you just cannot see wrong view. Wrong view gives wrong perception, gives wrong thought, gives wrong view, gives wrong perception, wrong thought, supporting one another, unable to see anything else. You can blow up a bit of wrong view. And any great insight which comes up as a result of jhanas, five hindrances gone, and you start to uh, see that which you took as a self, untenable, cannot be, not because of your thinking, but because of your experience. That's where there's an explosion in the mind. Dust, uh, rubble will last for many days and only afterwards when it all settles we actually see whether you've really blown up some of the fetters, whether Magapala has really been achieved. And if the first Magapala has been achieved, stream entry, you'll see very clearly after the dust settles that the view of a self has been completely destroyed. You see where it has been destroyed, the holes in the ground, the doer, the knower, the assessor, or whatever else. It was the home of your illusion. Now you see. You also see that before you just could not see. You see the wrong view you've carried for lifetimes. You see the right view which is now clear in front of you. Wrong view has been abandoned once and for all. Only through such a way can the Ripalazas start to be destroyed. Once the view of a self has been destroyed, then it becomes possible to view things as all things as impermanent sabe sankara anicca all compounded things are impermanent they're going to come to a stop that's what anicca means only when you've got rid of the illusion of self will you not demand there be some niche of the cosmos of reality which has happiness only then can you regard sabe sankara as dukkha. Only then can you see that all the five candors are dukkha. There are pain, abhadaya, an affliction, a suffering, there are boil, there are a thorn, all these other synonyms which the Buddha gave for the five candors. Only then can you look at the sensory experience like a cow with no 
no skin on it, just bare flesh with flies just biting at it, eating it, worms, maggots crawling all over it on a very sensitive flesh. Only then can you actually see that because the abandoning of the illusion of self allows that view to exist. And the view that all these compounded things are asupa, there's no beauty can truly be seen in this external world, not even in the internal world, a super. The view becomes pure. The stream enterer is one who has purified the view. Ditti Sampano, one who has attained or is, is, has got right view. Ditti Pato, attained to view. Samaditi of the Aryan Eightfold Path has been achieved. The first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path which is going to lead to liberation is there, complete. And you will see even at that moment just the Eightfold Path in front of you winding onto Nibbana, a path which will lead in one way only can only lead in that way. It just means just how fast, how energetic you walk along that road and develop those factors. So when Nibbana happens, one lifetime, two lifetimes, seven lifetimes, or even in this lifetime, the path is clear. View has been purified. And it's only a matter of time before the perception and thinking, the conceiving is purified, once view is corrected. Once you don't view the world as me or mine, it's only a matter of time before you don't perceive it as me or mine. This thing which I'm hearing now, this feeling in my body which I'm experiencing, even this mind object in jhanas, whatever it is, there's something in there which does never perceive this as mine. Because of that he can let it go and go deeper. Because of that he can let it go and go all the way into cessation. You cannot let go of even mind states if you think they're yours, if there's a self-illusion in there somewhere. This cannot be done. Perception starts to grow in purity, as does conception, the thinking. It's here that thoughts of lust and anger truly end, when the perceptions which give rise to, view, to anger and lust are purified, and anger and lust have got no building blocks, no foundations. They cannot arise. And there comes a time through the training of the stream enterer, the saker, the one in training, through the training in mindfulness, in recollection of the Dhamma, of the right view which they've achieved at stream entry. There comes a time when every moment of perception, every conception thought which arises in the mind is completely free 
from thoughts of ill will and lust. The perception that there is any permanence, beauty, happiness in the realm of the five senses is complete. Every moment the sati of the anagami is constant in that it will never see the karma loka will never perceive or even think, not even perceive once a karma loka as satisfactory, as happy, as beautiful, as permanent. Will never be caught for an instant in the uh, the lure, the trick of Mara. The anagami is free of Mara, free of the sensory world, the five sensory world, sorry, karma loka. Still just a little bit more to be done. This is a person who is in the simile of the, the person who is sinking, who has crossed over and is just standing on firm ground. Just at the shore, just needs to walk out of the water. I say it's in the simile of the raft. The person has crossed over the body of water but is still putting the raft on their head. They just need to put the raft down. That's all they need to do now. They've crossed over, the hard work is done. They just have to complete the purification of perception and thinking, of conceit. That that which is left, the sense of mind, the chitta. To see that the chitta, they already know this, the view is purified. Long ago at stream entry. But just to get this in every perception, every thought, in every moment, that even these mind objects, the Dhamma, it's not me, not mine, not a self, nothing to do with me. Only then can they let go of the mind. Only then can they allow the mind to cease at Parinibbana. When the bodily body is exhausted, when the five candors just dissolve, when the elements just go back to their source, in the ground, in the water, in the air, in the fire. And then Parinibbana is ended. Only then, when you give up the mind, the jitta, can arahat occur. Where you're not attached, taking up in view, perception or thought to anything in this world, internal, external, the mind, the body, never perceive or conceive of anything as me, mine, a self, as satisfactory, permanent, beautiful. You are free. The Eightfold Path has been perfected. Some, the ninth factor, Samma Vimuti. Samanyana, I think, is the no, the ninth one. Then Samawimuti. The knowledge and the liberation has occurred. You are free. Can't really say you are free. There's just freedom. There's nothing left. Everything is gone, empty, sunyata. It's like a workman waiting for your wages. 
task has been completed. The whippalasas have been destroyed. And this is the practice which we have. So please understand these whippalasas. And if you cannot say, especially as a monk, because a monk cannot claim to be an Aryan, to be a stream enterer to another monk, if they've got any doubts, otherwise they'd be parajika. They'd have to leave the monkhood. That's why it's always a good test. If you can't say to another monk, you're a stream enterer, then you're certainly not. You've got doubts there, because you're afraid of parajika, and rightly so. But if you are a stream enterer, if you're sure of that, then go and tell your teacher. Tell another monk. It'll make them happy. It'll give them joy. If you're an arahat, or whatever. But if you're not, if you're still a putuchana, if you haven't achieved that state yet, then don't take your views, your perceptions, and your thoughts as truth. Doubt them. Don't value them. Don't take them too seriously. Because if you do, they're going to lead you by the nose through many more existences. Put your confidence, your sadhar, your faith in the Buddha, in the Aryans. Abandon the five hindrances. Develop jhanas. And see for yourself. In the meantime, before you do that, don't trust your views, don't trust your perceptions, don't trust your thinking. It's a work of mala. That's all I have to say this evening. Has anyone got any questions or comments? Okay, let's call it a day.